this is our teaching text. Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 to 30. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. Because it's better for you to lose one part of your body than your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. Again, it is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. This is the word of the Lord. You can have a seat. Again, welcome to Gateway. Just a nice, if you're, if you're like in the afterglow of Easter or today you looked at your calendar or you opened up, if, I don't know if you have an Apple device, they just tell you, it's um, the Eastern Orthodox Church. It's Easter today for brothers and sisters. So he has risen and he's risen indeed. It's still true. Um, you might hear this and go, oh, Easter, adultery, lust, mutilation and hell. Well, this is a real humdinger. Um, so I, I'm not trying to hold up the shock value of this passage or leverage, because this is, even to, to my eyes, I've, I've heard this, I've taught through this. this. I'm not trying to leverage the shock value of this to serve an agenda. Instead, my heart, like what I hope to do in our time is just to turn our attention to the story that's in front of us. This is, in fact, what Jesus is doing, is he's inviting us into this larger story. And if you notice, we're all of a sudden back in the Sermon on the Mount, which means that um, we took a break. And for the Easters, we, like, prepared our hearts to close the Lenten season. And, in fact, this teaching was queued up for a first Sunday. If you've been around Gateway for a minute, you know that uh, first Sundays are when we have a family-style gathering. And so I figured talking about adultery and lust and mutilation and hell um, with all of the kids in the room. I didn't know if those were conversations that like Leyland was ready for or Griffin was ready for. He already asks me, Dad, am I going to die? And I go, I hope you live for a really long time, buddy. But so all that to say, we pressed pause. And so here we are today in this passage. We're turning our attention back to the Sermon on the Mount. And, and I don't assume that you're like, um, reading commentaries and, I don't know, like ancient Near Eastern divorce code on your free time. So here's a little bit of a refresher of what is going on in the gospel according to Matthew and what actually, what, what we're encountering in the Sermon on the Mount. You see, this passage that we just read from Matthew chapter 5, it is a part of this collection of teachings in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, what we would call the Sermon on the Mount, but what others have called Jesus's kingdom manifesto. And so here, in this place, we actually encounter this beautiful thing because Jesus is inviting us to see what life would be like if it was truly lived, what life would be like in God's kingdom, or what Matthew calls the kingdom of the heavens. And, and then this other like, beautiful thing takes place is that Matthew is going to share a story for us to understand this story. There's actually a story beneath the story, and this is the story of the Exodus account. And perhaps you only know this from the cinematic adventure, The Prince of Egypt. Um, if you don't, or maybe you're new to the library of scriptures, or you're like, gosh, I remember The Prince of Egypt. Let my Yeah, the song, Let My People Go. Anyways, here's a refresh on the story. Uh, 30,000 feet, Egypt all the way to the promised land. This is the story. Uh, 
Yahweh, the God of Israel, calls the people of Israel who are enslaved in the land of Egypt out of Egypt. And it is from that place that then God really calls all of those who would trust his provision to come into freedom. And there would be a way that freedom would come, and it would be through this path in the waters. Through the Red Sea, God's spirit blows, the wind of God blows. And I love this line in Exodus, the waters congeal up. That's just great, like jello. And there, the wind blows through, and then on dry land, the invitation is extended to the people to to come through the waters as an act of trust. And so they come out of Egypt and being enslaved through the waters, and then with worship on their lips, they step through, and they find themselves in the wilderness. And it's there in the mix of, of worship and almost like looking back and seeing the waters come back together that then this climactic moment occurs. This unlikely candidate, Moshe or Moses, he is called up. The whole, all of the people of Israel are called up to this holy mountain, but they're freaking out because God's presence on the mountain is like smoke and fire and lightning. And so they're like, I don't know if we can deal with fiery mountain God. So what we're going to do is, Moses, you go up on our behalf. So Moses goes and he enters into the presence and he receives these 10 words, these 10 words for flourishing. We know these as the 10 commandments. And um, you might be going, oh, yeah, I've heard about those. What, what, are the, what are these things? Well, the Ten Commandments are, in essence, this guide to live into flourishing. In essence, uh, you could say the ten words are this, God's framework for blessing among the people of Israel. And just a quick aside here, because some of the words or the commandments that God gives to the people of Israel, they're just conventional wisdom of the day. So it's literally Israelites borrowing from their neighbors. Um, Do not murder. It's going to be difficult to flourish as a community if people are going around killing one another. And it's going to be difficult for you to flourish in your community if you are constantly caught up in the anxiety of your neighbor plotting your death. So... um, Maybe, maybe don't do that. That's the conventional wisdom that is on offer in the words. But in the specific nature, like there's also, there's a specific word for the people related to God. There's circumstances, words given to that. And one of those that sounds strange even to this day is uh, no graven images. I'm sure all of you were tweeting about graven images this week. Uh, no, we just don't talk like this. And, and we don't even talk about idolatry, but that's the language that's active there. And you might be wondering, well, why is that the case? Why is this wisdom for flourishing among God's people? And it's because these people who were once enslaved and are now brought into a space of liberation and are then going to be invited through this wisdom to live out their liberation, they already are an idol. See, on the beginning pages, humanity is declared as the ones who bear God's image, which means that they are already more like God than anything they could fashion with their hands. They, male and female, uniquely bear out the Creator's divine love in all of creation. And so then comes to them, you don't need to fashion anything else because you uniquely reflect the beauty of God in all creation. These are the ten words. Out of Egypt, through the waters, into the wilderness, up onto the mount, and they receive the law or the word of God. But that's not the end of the story, is it? Because it's there that the people look back and they're remembering the garlic oh, the, and the leeks. Oh, they just they want some food. And so they look back to the land that they came from, the, the place of their enslavement, and they're like, oh, we want some soup. 
And so as they cry out to God for provision, this is what Yahweh, the God of Israel, does. He provides for them. And then this strange, flaky thing shows up on the ground, and they look at it, and they go, mana, which is a Hebrew joke because it literally means, what is it? Mana. Try, try this on. Mana. Mana. Yeah. What is it, you just said in Hebrew? And so they look at this provision of God, and they go, what in the world is this? And that is how the Bible is pretty funny. It's okay. You can laugh at those. Those are that's, that's good. That's good Bible humor if you're a Bible nerd. So we come out of Egypt and God's provision. In this provision, it is like a signpost pointing into the future that this is what the God who delivers people who have been enslaved will do. He will provide with abundance. This is pointing forward to the promised land. Out of Egypt through the waters, into the wilderness, up on the mount to receive the word, divine provision, this like heaven's bread, and then the promised land. This is the story beneath the story. And if this sounds weird, just check this out. If you want, you can go to Matthew 2, but I'm just going to go quickly through this. When you see this, um, oh, this is exciting. So what we see is that in Matthew chapter 2, we get to this moment, and we have Mary and Joseph and baby Jesus And now normally this is our Christmas-themed story. And where do Mary and Joseph and baby Jesus go when persecution rises up? Oh, they go down to Egypt. And then Matthew cues up the whole Exodus narrative with these simple words, Out of Egypt I called my son. And if you have ears to hear, you're like, oh, is he going to do it? Yes, he is. You turn the page, Matthew chapter 3, and immediately what you're going to see is that Jesus has come on the scene in the wake of John the Baptist. And where does Jesus go? Where do we find him? Well, we find Jesus in the waters. He's going into the baptism waters, and he comes out, and he is affirmed as God's beloved son. Before he does a single thing, God's belovedness is announced on Jesus. And where then do we find Jesus? Through the waters into the wilderness. That's Matthew chapter 4, and you turn the page, and you come to where? Well, you come to the Sermon on the Mount, and you see now that the Jesus stands up on the Mount to give a new word, a new authoritative word that is going to be a word of blessing and flourishing for the people of God. Anybody who will receive this word, this is what it looks like to flourish in God's kingdom. But that's not the end of the story, because you go to Matthew chapter 14, and all of a sudden you see a mob of hungry people. And divine provision breaks out. And again, it is another sign that God's kingdom, like, it is not just, God's kingdom is not just this intellectually or existentially satisfying thing. Although I think that it is, it is more, it's actually about provision. This links back to that generosity uh, liturgy. Like, We actually have a hope that there would be no person, no needy person among us is the story of the kingdom of God breaking out in our midst, which is that God's provision comes through his people. And that is a signpost all the way to the future, to new heavens and new earth and new creation. This is Jesus breaking. And by the way, this is the gospel. And this is, this is where I'm like, oh, let's, okay, I'll just keep going. Um, And you might be wondering, okay, what in the world does the story beneath the story have to do with adultery and lust and mutilation and hell? Well, just recall where we are in the story. We're on the mount. We're with Jesus. 
And Jesus is there to give us a new word for flourishing. Do you think that we might need a word of wisdom in how our bodies are integrated into the life of Jesus? It's not just that we have some soul that we pray a prayer and then we get launched up into the heavens at our death, but rather this is integration that Jesus desires, that we would be whole people who are wholly healed. You see, Jesus is not in the Sermon on the Mount simply lashing stricter teaching to the law. Jesus is here to talk about the true way of liberation. Anytime that you hear a preacher say something like true, ask them what they mean. I will tell you what I mean by true. I'm not talking about truth as like a propositional statement. I'm talking about true how an archer would talk about true. Now, I'm not an archer, so I read something on the internet. It could be false. But here's what I learned from the internet. An archer talks about true when they talk about an arrow. That is, when they shoot that arrow and it goes where they have aimed it to go, the arrow is true. Jesus' teachings are true in that they go where they aim. They aim at liberation and new creation, and Jesus actually delivers on this. He does this with what we celebrated this last week and what our brothers and sisters in the Eastern Orthodox Church are celebrating today, that he is risen, and we say he is risen indeed. This is what I mean by true. And so all of that, the story beneath the story, bringing us back to our passage. So go with me again to verse 27, and let's talk about adultery. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Jesus there is quoting from Exodus 20, Deuteronomy 5. You have heard that it is said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And the formula that we just heard, that you have heard it said, but I tell you, is Jesus as a good Jewish rabbi weighing out the heavier and the lighter matters of the law. You may recall this from a number of weeks ago. It's like a month and a half or something like that. But when Jesus is building out this formula, he's actually expanding on a statement where he said, I've not come to do away with or abolish the law. I've actually come to see it come to its fulfillment. Which means that when Jesus says, you have heard it said, he's quoting from this heavy command should not commit adultery. But I say to you, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully, we'll get to those in a moment. He's actually saying that there is a weightiness to both of those things. There is a precedence and an urgency to these things. And yet when we hear that first one, Jesus quoting from Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5, do not commit adultery, this is pretty straightforward, right? I would hope, yeah, we like, I, I would think that we would have an understanding. Adultery is what? Like extramarital sex or an extramarital sexual relationship. And if this is how a Google search, uh, clearly I need to expand my search engine, like Google's my engine. Um, this is what they say. Adultery is a consenting sexual relationship by a married man or woman with someone other than their spouse. But let me just ask, um, did Jesus go up on a mount in 2022? No, it's a silly question because uh, he did not. Which leads us to ask, is adultery the same in Jesus' mind as it is in ours? Like, does Google and Jesus have the same definition of adultery? Maybe. But here, uh, this is from Erdman's Bible Dictionary, who's like calling on the, um, basically, the resources of history and anthropology and archaeology to get a definition of what 
Adultery might have looked like in the ancient Near East. This is what they have to say. This is one Bible lexicon on adultery. Adultery is sexual intercourse by a married woman with a man other than her husband. That's interesting. Google says a consenting sexual relationship by a married man or woman with someone other than their spouse. In the ancient Near East, this is sexual intercourse. Adultery is sexual intercourse by a married woman with a man other than her husband. Now, um, who were married women to men in the ancient Near East? At a crude level, women were property. And that can be jarring because I think that it is. There's an infrastructure that's built around a man and his capacity or their capacities to provide or their perceived capacities to provide. And so this is the structure that comes forward. So therefore, adultery was not primarily a violation of trust, although I imagine that's a part of it. And adultery was not primarily this matter of like a violation of fidelity, although that was a part of it. The violation was that property was mishandled. So just let that sink in when we come to Jesus' words. When Jesus is talking about adultery, he's talking about a matter that's an infringement on property. And, and who might benefit from an interpretation of the law that women are property? Men might benefit from that. And what does Jesus do in the face of a law and an interpretation of the law of Moses that benefits men? Jesus undercuts it. He undercuts the objectification of women to get to the heart. Jesus speaks to this precedent, you have heard it said, and then challenges it. Check this out in verse 20 more, 28 once more. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. See, right here in a, in a moment the cultural license that's available, we might say like, oh, boys will be boys. But in a moment, Jesus undercuts that and then denies it as valid or accessible to the people of God. And now the wife, excuse me, like the wife, the husband is now under obligation to covenantal fidelity. The weight of responsibility is displaced from the woman only and instead, she is exalted to the same dignity as a husband. Do you think that this would just be, I don't know, a casual conversation? Or how do you think the people would receive this? I hope that you are thinking, um, this would be pretty intense to hear. Because um, this isn't entirely unprecedented in the ancient Near East. It's just uncommon for a rabbi who has a very very conservative approach to marriage and sexual identity um, to say something like this because generally that's weighted towards the support of men, but Jesus instead undercuts that to elevate the dignity of women. In other words, Jesus lays the full responsibility on the male and expects him to submit his desire to control. So I don't know if you've been in a context where, um, and maybe it was like youth group or something, where there's a conversation around modesty not growing up in the church and then coming into the church in my college years, I heard a lot of conversations on modesty. One time I had shorts on with like a seven-inch in steam, and I got a conversation about modesty. And I was like, what, what in the world is this? Like, seven inches? I, I would go with five. Um, <laughs> a 
I don't know if that's the heart of Jesus. Because again, modesty is provided like to accommodate men. And Jesus is saying, men, get your desire in check. Jesus is actually giving a gift to women in that space. And I just imagine him with a grin on his face while he's teaching through the Sermon on the Mount. You see, this brings us to the conversation on lust. So that's adultery. There's way more to say, but that's it for now. Here's lust. See, what the NIV translates as lovely, I think can still be somewhat ambiguous. So I'm just drawing in a number of translations to help us fill out what lustfully might mean. To start, the ESV, which maybe you like it, maybe you dislike it. I think they do an okay job here. I'm not the end-all, be-all arbiter of Bible translations. They say this, anyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent, so they give a trajectory of that look. Uh, Dale Bruner, a a leading New Testament scholar in the Gospel according to Matthew, translates this, uh, verse 28, this way, every man who is looking at a woman in order to lust after her, so there's a possessive nature in that. Tim Mackey, uh, if you know him from the Bible Project, if not, get to know Tim Mackey from the Bible Project. Uh, he, He puts it this way, anyone who stares at a woman in order to fuel sexual desire for her. And then I think Dallas Willard here here, um, for the win. Uh, Anyone who looks upon a woman for the purpose of lusting for her, using her visual presence as a means of savoring the fantasized act. Now, Willard is always wordy, but let's just hear that one more time. Anyone who looks upon a woman for the purpose of lusting for her, and then this is how Willard unpacks lusting for her, using her visual presence as a means of savoring the fantasized act. What is the act? Sexual gratification. See, Jesus' concern about the objectification of those who bear God's image, it is so intense that he'll actually go on in a moment to talk about the gift of like cutting off body parts mutilation, and even um, the challenge and judgment of hell. We're going to get to those. I know you're like so excited for mutilation and hell. But for now, uh, I think it would be helpful for us to actually parse out the difference between attraction and lust. See, attraction is where biological and environmental factors collide such that you or I experience arousal. So environmental factors biological factors. This is as simple as a man or a woman seeing someone and they notice an aspect of that person and it registers in their body as arousal. That is not sin. Attraction is not sin. Let's just say you're walking down Court Avenue. It's a warm summer's day. I don't know. It's the farmer's market. And you see someone who fits um, our culture's definition of beauty or your definition of beauty. And all of a sudden, you perceive beauty. And in that moment, you recognize in your body something that happens. We would call that attraction. And that attraction is itself not sinful. Where it starts to shift from attraction to lust, and this is like... I just want to be cautious here. This is where you'll get conversations about the second look. Anybody, just by a show of hands, who's familiar with the second look? Okay, these are the people, if you look around, who have been in Christian spaces talking about this. So if you know what the second look is, it's like there, and it's a play on words. It's like second as in one, two, and second as in counting. If you look too long, then sin is going to take root and you're going to die. Um, I think there is some wisdom to be had about like bringing your desire under control. 
that you actually have responsibility. And Jesus is placing a weight of responsibility on what you do in the midst of that. So I think the first place is like to notice that you have desire, which we could call attraction, and that it is a good gift from God. It's biologically hardwired for people to experience desire in a whole kaleidoscope of ways. And God would say that that desire in its intent is good. And that our desires have actually come under the weight of the mar of sin and that our desires are disordered. And then we add fuel to that fire of disordered desire. But if we notice that, Jesus' instruction here, as far as I can tell, is to say to place it under control. Because, as we'll see, there's, there's a weightiness to this, which is the objectification of people who bear God's image. So if that's attraction, what is lust? Well, lust, here's a stab at a definition, is an outgrowth of attraction. But unlike attraction, lust nurtures desire for its own end. There's a, an old dead dude named Augustine. He's a, maybe you call him St. Augustine. He had this idea called incurvatus, this idea of like desire or love turned inward, that this is a good thing that it then turns in for itself. This is the idea of lust. It is an outgrowth of attraction that turns inward and nurtures desire towards its own end. And I think uh, Dale Bruner, who gave us a definition or gave us a, uh, a translation of verse 28, I think he, he helps unpack this well. So everyone just take a deep breath. Okay, here's uh, a proper Bible nerd on this. To look at an attractive person can be a drive given in creation, attraction. To keep on looking, staring is a drive given in the fall from creation. This is a uniquely biblical perspective with sin in part going on. Jesus condemns lustful looking Staring with the intent to possess or at least burn with passion, the other person is no longer really a unique human being. She or he is now simply kindling tender. I don't think Bruner has ever swiped any direction. A thing, a way for one to enjoy oneself, to express oneself, to feel one's power. I get that the way of Jesus and his sexual ethic is weird. It is weird. And if you try to embody a sexual ethic, and maybe it's, and maybe it's like, I don't know, I'm, what, I'm a cisgend, heterosexual male, I'm white, I have blue hair, blonde, like I fit all the cultural stereotypes of power. So like, who am I to say this? I don't really have a lot of weight in this. And I'm also just here saying that as I'm wrestling with this, um, the sexual ethic of Jesus is weird. And I fit the quote-unquote norm, and it's weird for me. And so this is a place where I think that as a church, it would be beautiful if we could just, if we could have a posture of receiving and not starting necessarily with naming what an outcome of a thing is, which we're going to turn to mutilation and hell in a moment, but it's just to sit with someone, not to solve them as a person to to like as a problem to be solved, but a person to be loved, this is actually a uniquely Christian posture that we can hold when we talk about this. And it can begin to actually transform the nature of our own identity, that we find our belonging in Jesus. Say we actually belong to Jesus before we affirm some doctrinal statement. This is a place where we can practice this. 
And so, yes, Jesus stands in opposition to objectification. And beneath that, there is a deeper concern, what Jesus calls the lust of the heart. Because at the core of the matter, Jesus is actually after that thing, our heart. And our heart in the biblical imagination, this is the center of who you are. This is the center of your mind and your will and your intellect and your desires. And Jesus actually wants to see your heart because he has a word for flourishing. He wants to see your heart released from the bondage of slavery and given way to life in the spirit. Amen? Why else are we here if we don't want to encounter the presence of Jesus who releases us from the bonds of enslavement to sin and releases us to life? We're wasting our time if Jesus actually hasn't died to death and risen to new life. This is what we're here to do, is to encounter new life in Jesus. And I I just imagine, I make this assumption that we all carry, whether something done to us or something we've participated in, we all carry this sexual baggage. You could call it brokenness, you could call it trauma, we carry this weight in this area and we are a hyper-sexualized culture you can't turn on the tv or swipe through whatever or scroll through your newsfeed without encountering something meant to drive up attraction or even to make your eyes linger on something because there's this link between our eyes and our heart and our heart is the center of all of who we are there's something that is here that jesus is getting at the integration of who we are because he actually wants us to be truly free. See, I just, maybe you feel like this little illustration that we're about to hit will be played out, but I found it to be quite potent. Just, um, just consider fire with me, because if, if lust is this thing that hijacks our desires and it has this combustive power, then just think about fire. Fire when it's clinging to a wick, can actually bring light to a room. It can be something that drives hospitality or intimacy. Fire, when placed in a container like an oven, can bake bread and roast vegetables and feed a community. Fire, when placed in your furnace, can heat your home. These are, these are good things. These are great goods. But fire can also jump out And a single ember can light a whole forest ablaze. Fire, I remember we were at the Bowsers doing this bonfire, and Griffin, who's a small human, is like, the fire is like, ah. And he's then starting to, like, approach it with his hand. And I'm just there, like, okay, how far, how how far? Like, does he feel? I can feel the heat. Does he feel the heat? There is a boundary that you can't necessarily see, and it will burn you. And maybe you feel like, oh, Kyle's about to say, don't play with fire. I'm not saying that. I'm saying recognize the power of this thing, that there is a combustive force to our sexuality. And perhaps, perhaps, this is where I am. I'm not saying you have to be where I am. Perhaps there is a container within which that sexuality will not release this combustive force but can be contained for a great good. And in the midst of all of this, Jesus calls the men of his day, and I would say all of us, to guard that power with integrity. This is a conversation that started with adultery, which means the focus of this conversation is marriage. And this does not also mean that if you are not married or have no desire to be married or were once married, we'll talk about divorce next week, um, that this is not a conversation for you because are you human? Yes. And if you're human, Jesus' words on what it means to flourish as such 
comes to bear on you, and we just have to deal with it. I don't think we can sidestep this. I think we just have to deal with it and wrestle well. And I think that the temptation in our context is to like parse out the particulars of lust. So we'll just get really down into the nitty and gritty and we'll start to say, okay, movies are art. Art is a gray area. And because movies are art, and art is about aesthetic beauty and story, then that means if there's an erotic scene in art, that erotic scene is about aesthetics and beauty. Okay. I can watch this thing, and it can be about beauty and not pleasure. If you have ever found yourself walking down the path of this broken logic as I have, this is really asking the question, how far is too far? Anecdotally and autobiographically, that question, as I've utilized it, is a way to justify something that in my heart was in opposition to my allegiance to Jesus. And the more often I ask that question, the, the duller my senses were to what I believe and is the Spirit actually calling to me to another way. See, so this is the point. The pressing question for, for Christians is not, is fire good or bad? That's a stupid question when it comes to fire. It's not, is fire good or bad? The pressing question is, who am I becoming by what I am doing? And if we consider, like if you were to just curate your doings and then ask after each of those things, who am I becoming? And you don't have to share that with anyone. What would it say? What would it display that your heart is indexed towards? The question I think that this text draws us to ask is, who am I becoming by what I'm doing? How am I being formed sexually? And what I'm about to say, I think, is profoundly simple, but it will texture this whole teaching. And if you're taking notes, please write this down in all capital letters. Jesus wants to be Lord of your aroused state. And when I heard that, that's not a Kyle thought, when I heard that this week listening to a lecture on sexual formation, something clicked into place. T to hear that Jesus wants to be Lord of my aroused state means that Jesus is actually announcing liberation into a place that I've historically hidden from Jesus. Do you actually believe that Jesus wants you to be like, I don't know, whole? that he cares about the things that you have hidden away and he has sympathy and empathy and a desire to heal you and stand with you in your pain and to see you released from the bonds of trauma and over years actually walk into healing. That that's actually possible in the name of Jesus and will it take time? Yes. And can it happen in community? Sometimes. But most often that community is just as broken and fractured in that area. So we need help. We need therapists. We need time. We need prayer. We need like prayers of healing. And yet in the midst of that, I truly believe that in this community, Jesus has a word of liberation to bring, especially to the shame that we carry in our own bodies for things that we've done or things that have been done to us by others that we could not control. This is something that I think that we desperately need to hear again because it is it is all too often missed, and you end up talking about modesty and wearing longer shorts that hit your knees, which is ridiculous. Knee Shorts on the knees? Why would you do that? 
See, this whole thing is heading toward new creation. And Jesus, he wants, he wants us to encounter that reality because it's breaking in here and now through the life of the Spirit. So how about mutilation? If your right eye causes you to stumble, just gouge it out. Same thing with your right hand because it's better for one part to be thrown out than your whole body to go to hell. I'm sure this is uh, your favorite, like, I don't know, cross-stitching. Any, someone please with cross-stitching skills. Karen, I don't, can you please cross-stitch a pillow? That would just be lovely. We could just put it right here. Um, just first off, Jesus is not advocating for self-mutilation. Let's say he was. Could there be a part that was more pressing? Like, could there be a part that he could say, hey, cut that off, and it might mitigate the risk? Anybody? Genitals? No? Okay. The core concern is the renovation of the heart. And so this is hyperbole. And I just think this, this ought not make us to relax our sexuality because this is hyperbole. Instead, this is for us to guard our sexuality as the good gift that it is. And as Jesus says, if you do not cut this thing off, it'll actually cause you to stumble It'll cause you to trip, to fall into a thing, and it's a thing that Jesus calls hell. And I don't know how you think about hell, but this is not hell from a medieval story where there's a red guy with a tail and a pitchfork. This idea of hell, in fact, the, the um, pitchfork guy, that's not found in the biblical narrative, as far as I can tell. Um, no, the hell that Jesus is talking about here is quite literally hell. It's, this is Gehenna. This is a place on the south side of the city. It's the Valley of Hinnom. It's a place of Jerusalem with a dark history. If you go and you start reading in um, the Kings and the Chronicles, what you'll find is the story of Ahaz, who was a king in Israel. And the line is, he did not do what was right in God's eyes. Ahaz then goes to this place, the Valley of Hinnom, and he offers his children in sacrifice to another God. He actually says that this is a place where I will offer those who, who bear the image of Yahweh to appease this God and these foreign powers. This is a place with a dark history. It is a place of death. It is a place of judgment. And it is a place on earth. So when we say this is like hell on earth, that's a more biblical statement than you could ever imagine. Because often that is what it looks like. Hell is actually here. And Jesus came to get the hell out of us and to get the hell out of earth because heaven is the reality whereby God is breaking in. So when Jesus talks about hell, our impulse ought to be to think not of heaven. Instead, when we think about heaven, our impulse ought to be to think of earth because those are the things that Jesus is bringing together. Cut it off. And to cut something off is to say that this thing is so serious that it's actually worth removing so that I might have life. This is not what Willard would call uh, sin management. This is not like, I don't know, just behavior modification in the name of Jesus. See, cut it off lest you stumble. Cut it off lest you stumble into addiction. Cut it off lest you stumble into never being able to actually, like, neurobiologically have an attraction to any person. Cut it off lest you stumble into a crippling burden of guilt and shame. You see, Jesus is warning about death of hell here on earth. 
And let's just say that you've come to the end of this, you've listened dutifully for, you know, 30 plus minutes, and you say, yeah, I'm down with Jesus' sexual ethic. I'm with you on this whole adult. It's, I don't like it, but I, I can see how it's a part of Jesus' ethic in the life of the kingdom. You, maybe, maybe you're even here and you're like, I find it compelling. It was better than I thought it was going to be. That's nice. This is refreshing. Not the worst sex talk. Okay. Let's say you're there. But right now, you actually don't know if this is possible. Like you have no idea if this is actually possible. You hear something about cutting it off, and you're like, man, you, you don't know what I've seen. You don't know the stuff I've done. You don't know my history. That might be good for some other people here. But you're like, I don't, like what if I have to, like, are you saying that I, like, there's a future for me? You, you, like, what if I have to present the roster to someone? What, like, here in this community? To bear that? You just, don't, you just don't know the stuff that I'm carrying right now. If this is your internal monologue, this is why I actually find Jesus so compelling. Jesus had this knack of going around and dining with people who would just call sinners, which was code for sex workers. Jesus would actually keep the company of those who probably carried shame in their body and literally in a culture where honor and shame were the measure of who you are in that society, they literally carried shame around in their bodies and Jesus moved toward them. He actually goes around doing that and then there's this scene where there's this woman who was caught in an act of adultery and she's brought and she's laid before Jesus' feet. And her accusers stand saying, what should be done with her? And do you know the scene? Do you know Jesus gets down? He gets down and he creates this wedge, this buffer, this space for this woman's healing. And so if your internal monologue is something like, you don't know what I've walked through, you don't know what I've seen, you don't know what I did this morning on my way here, like, I, I want you to picture Jesus actually getting down with you into the dirt, into the mess of it, and saying, go and sin no more. That this is the posture of Jesus. He'll actually get with you down into the place of accusation. And he will say, where are your accusers now? And you'll look up and you will see no one. Because there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is what it means to be with Jesus. This is actually our story. This is the word of liberation. This is the story beneath the story that we get to inhabit. By the power of the Spirit. And the life together in community. 